0: You're listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. On this edition, we'll talk with a veteran surveillance reporter about how law enforcement is gathering data on protesters. I think
1: for most of us, we understand, like, okay, the police are looking for one criminal mastermind and they're taking extraordinary measures to go after one person. That's one thing. It's an entirely different thing when people are peacefully assembling and the government is using something like a license plate reader or a drone or uh, something else that can monitor who is there, whether that's through facial recognition, whether that's through a device that's capturing data off of cell phones, whether that's something else that we can't even imagine yet.
0: I'm Laura Wennis, and this is Civic. With hundreds of thousands of people taking to the streets in recent weeks to protest police killings and racism, you've probably seen coverage of how law enforcement has responded in the moment. But law enforcement also gathers information. I talked with Sarus Farivar, a reporter on the Tech Investigations Unit of NBC News in San Francisco and author of Habeas Data. He's covered some recent cases in which law enforcement surveillance of social media posts about protests has resulted in real-life enforcement actions. You wrote recently about a man named Mike Avery and shortly after police killed George Floyd, he wrote on Facebook that he was going to go join a protest. He wrote, we promised to do our very best to be safe and not do anything to get arrested. Then he got arrested by the FBI. Why? What happened there?
1: Great question. Um, yeah, so Mike Avery uh, was a, is apparently a pretty well-known uh, political activist in St. Louis, in and around St. Louis, and he... Um, is somebody who has been turning out to protest after protest for years, you know, going back to to at least uh, the days of, of Ferguson a few years back. Um, and yes, as you say, he was arrested by the FBI. Uh, th- he was indicted uh, on federal criminal charges uh, under 18 United States Code Section 2101, which, as I'm sure everybody knows, is the, as I'm sure everybody knows, is the, uh, what's called the Anti-Riot Act, which is a law that, frankly, I had never even heard of until uh, just a few weeks ago. So the Anti-Riot Act is a federal law that I had never even heard of until a few weeks ago. And it was, what got my attention was the fact that this was a person, Mike Avery, who had, you know drawn the ire of federal authority so much so that he was indicted based solely on what he said. Right. Not on what he actually did. He wasn't accused of assault. He wasn't accused of of anything else. He was just accused of things that he said on Facebook. I sort of wondered out loud. And, uh, you know, you can go and find I think I, I asked this question on Twitter, like, is this normal for people to be charged with this law? Uh, and the answer is no, it's not normal. Uh, according to one law professor I spoke to at uh, St. Louis University, um, it's very unusual for this law to be used. It's only been used a handful of times uh, over the last half century, uh, and Mr. Avery, unfortunately, was uh, one of the uh, you know recent wave of of people to be caught up uh, in the in the. Uh, you know, in the eyes of the Department of Justice. I will say that uh, Mr. Avery's story has something of a happy ending in the for him, at least uh, in the fact that the charges were suddenly uh, dropped. So the Department of Justice, uh, in its infinite wisdom, has decided that uh, it did not want to bring a case against Mr. Avery after all. Um, At my last check, there were, however, three other defendants um, in other parts of the country, that continue to face uh, similar charges on one sole count of violating this thing called the Anti-Riot Act.
0: Yeah, I'm glad that you brought that up because I did want to ask about that. He's one of four people you found across the country who's been indicted indicted on charges based only, if I read this correctly, on social media posts. So, so really, just what yeah. they said on the internet. What That's happened right. in those cases?
1: Yeah. The other ones are have. A little bit different circumstances unlike mr avery's case i think there was one where you know it talked about people in essentially inviting people to riot at a specific place at a specific time and also loot a specific place at a specific time um, and so according to the legal experts i spoke to there might be a case there and the government continues to pursue those cases last i checked But it's been really hard for the government to prove these cases generally. Um, One of the problems with the difference between the federal anti-riot law and state law equivalents is incitement to riot is something that, at least as far as most state laws are concerned, is something that requires kind of imminence, right? You have to show you don't have many rights when law enforcement or the government can show that there's sort of imminent harm that's going to happen. Right. So if somebody says on on Facebook, hey, let's go rob this store tomorrow at five or whatever, then, you know, they can show that that potentially violates the First Amendment. But so we'll see, you know, even in the case of there were some some white supremacists, people may remember there was this group called Rise Above Movement. These guys Mm -hmm. from Southern California, uh, even in their case, um, where they were they were also indicted under uh, under the Anti-Riot Act uh, and another charge as well under a different law. Um, the a federal judge in Los Angeles said, even though these guys hold toxic views, you know, we have to dismiss uh, their criminal indictment, what they did, you know, basically finding also that this entire section of this law, this entire Anti-Riot Act itself was unconstitutional. So Um, you know, it's very unusual for cases to be brought. It's very hard. It's a very high bar to clear the First Amendment. That is Uh, right. People, as you probably know, right, have a lot of leeway to say all kinds of things. Uh, And the government, generally speaking, uh, can't do a lot about it. And, you know, if you and I, probably have seen lots of people, particularly in recent weeks, saying all kinds of things right against the government, against the police, against all kinds of things, you know, oftentimes insulting the police, oftentimes using expletives, oftentimes saying things that are aggressive uh, towards police. And all of that is protected under the First Amendment. So. um, So, yeah, we don't have a full picture as to why the Department of Justice now has decided to invoke uh the anti-riot act in ways that they haven't done or haven't done to this degree um until now it's not clear whether that's something that uh, bill barr the new attorney general under trump um has decided to take on on his own um or or if u.s attorneys in different parts of the country took it upon themselves or maybe both um we don't really know there's a lot of unanswered questions
0: well, it's one thing to end up being convicted. And there is this protection from the First Amendment, ostensibly. But Mike Avery was arrested, right? He he went to jail briefly. This had real world yes. ramifications for him. Yes,
1: absolutely. Yes. Yes. And as I as I say in my piece, right, this can create and this is, I think, the the one of the concerns that many civil rights activists, civil liberties activists, free speech activists have is that It can create a chilling effect, right? Even if you're somebody like Mike Avery, who is very outspoken, has very uh, loud uh, and well-known political views, you know, has a First Amendment right to express them, whether you're Mike Avery or somebody like Mike Avery, a future Mike Avery... You might think twice before you say those things on Facebook or anywhere else, knowing that, you know, even if your criminal indictment is ultimately dropped uh, suddenly, you know, days later, you know, nobody wants to go through the hassle of of getting arrested. And, you know, he has a young child. I know it's certainly very scary and very disruptive uh, to one's life. So I think that that's something that many civil libertarians think about is that when you have laws like this, it can create a chilling effect where people are afraid to speak because, you know, a case might be brought against them, even if it's ultimately dropped.
0: And it's also a little bit chilling in general just to think about law enforcement going onto Facebook, Twitter, whatever, and and poking around. You wrote, since the protests started, federal investigators have been trawling through Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and other social media channels looking for rioters and looters. How exactly does law enforcement use social media? Are they just passively looking or are they participating?
1: Well, it's a great question. And the uh, <laughs> I hate to be a broken record, but the answer is we don't always know, right? We don't always know. And I would say it depends on jurisdiction to ju- jurisdiction and agency to agency, right? The way that the FBI acts is probably different from the way the, you know, Oakland Police Department acts, which is probably different from the way the santa cruz county sheriff acts right like it depends on where you are how large the law enforcement agency you're talking about uh you know what they do and depends how sophisticated they are uh an agency like the fbi certainly has many more resources than your typical kind of county sheriff right in the case of mike avery mike avery is very public with what he does right his posts you don't have to like friend him or do anything nefarious To see what he's writing Uh, and anybody who makes their post public, you know, should be aware that just as easy, just as they can be easily read by people like you and I, uh, surely they can also be read by by law enforcement. Um, You know, there have been cases previously where uh, agencies have been known to use. Uh, undercover, you know, Facebook identities to friend people who they think are potentially uh, suspicious mm. uh, or who are committing criminal behavior. You know, there are other kinds of services that are out there that can perform analytics looking for certain types of keywords that can be used. You know, for for good and ill. Right within NBC News, we use a a service called Data Miner, which is a as a way to find out you know breaking breaking news through social media through twitter specifically i use it every day it just helps me to find out kind of what information people are talking about that's useful to me as a journalist i'm not obviously uh, an investigator Uh, i'm not a police person there are other kinds of more automated tools that can be used and they differ from from place to place and quite honestly it's not always easy to tell who has what and you know what the specific policies of each agency is
0: I mean, now that you've brought up being a journalist and the tools that we use, I don't know if this is necessarily something you can speak to. But I'm curious what your thoughts are on journalists covering breaking news and posting video and photos with hashtags. I mean, I I do this. I go out and I report and I put it on Twitter. Am am I contributing to surveillance?
1: Are you contributing to surveillance? Yeah. Uh,
0: I don't.
1: I I don't think so. Um. I I don't think so. I think that that. Surveillance as we would understand it, uh, a kind of watchful monitoring action taken by a government agency for the purpose of you know investigating potential criminal behavior to me is very different than what you and I do what, what, what journalists do we, we talk to people we collect information and then our aim is not to to find criminals our aim is to inform the public and tell people what we have learned mm-hmm. uh, that, that's what our that's what our objective is at the end of the day. Sometimes that means talking to criminals, but a lot of times it doesn't. A lot of times it just means talking to regular people and and hearing what they have to say and trying to distill what they're doing and whether we're, you know, quoting people, recording audio, recording video, using hashtags. Like, I don't I don't think of that as as surveillance. And certainly, you know, I think one of the things that any certainly any journalist that I know does is that they try to be respectful of people's. Wishes and try to be respectful of people's, you know, consent. Right? Nobody ever is under any obligation to speak to to a journalist. Certainly not to me. Right? If people say they don't want to talk to me, that's fine. I move on. It's mm. it's not not a big deal. You know, if you are under surveillance by a government agency, probably you don't know it, or at least it's it's maybe hard for you to tell. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that's so. Potentially uh, insidious about about government surveillance is that people don't know what's happening. People don't know what information is being collected. It's very obvious when you or I walk up to somebody with a microphone or a notepad or an iPhone or or whatever, and say, "Hey, I'm a reporter with organization X, and we'd like to talk to you about you know topics A, B, and C." Uh, it's very obvious what we're doing, right? But right. if a if a government drone or helicopter or some other type of of specialized equipment. Is present over a protest or near a protest or in other in some other sort of scenario it's very hard I think for regular people to be able to know this is what they're doing this is the type of information this is the the thing that's being collected mm-hmm. um, you know so yeah uh, I think I think that that the very short version is I don't think what we're doing is surveillance <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, we've just talked a lot about things people put out there publicly. Let's talk a bit about what we actually want to keep private. You wrote about a a bill that uh, Republican senators introduced this week that would codify lawful access, and that's access to people's encrypted devices by law enforcement. What kind of access would this bill grant and to whom? Well,
1: it's interesting because, uh, you know, for the past several years and arguably at least for the last quarter century, there's been this ongoing—you uh, could call it a debate, you could call it a cat and mouse game, you could call it uh, lots of things—but there's been this kind of back and forth between the abilities of, you know, technology and and the sophistication of specifically what we call strong encryption, uh, the the way for our devices to be encrypted in a sophisticated way that makes it very difficult for whether it's the government or whether it's some you know random hacker on the internet or you know, your nosy neighbor uh, to, to intercept. In 1993, when there was some initial discussion of this, encryption was much less sophisticated than it is now. Certainly that long predated smartphones, that long predated strong encryption availability, you know, to the masses. Here we are 20 plus years later, and we now, I think most of us, carry pretty sophisticated tiny little computers in our pocket that have strong encryption enabled by default however in some instances it's difficult for the government to access their to access those devices right so so here's the argument that government makes is this let's say i get arrested and i have my phone they they think that i'm committing some massive financial fraud and they think that there's evidence of my my financial fraud on my phone uh so they go to a judge and they say hey judge uh we think cerus is a is a mastermind financial criminal um, we would like to search his phone here's why uh, here's the probable cause the judge says yep, that's great go search the phone um, If I don't consent to the phone being searched uh, they can they can take my phone but depending on what type of phone I have and depending when they actually do the search, they may or may not be able to get to actually get into the phone right You may remember a few years back there was this famous kind of showdown between Apple and Uh, the FBI, over Mm -hmm. a phone that was seized uh, in San Bernardino by this guy, uh, Sayed Rizwan Farouk, the the guy who shot up the San Bernardino County of Public Health uh, Christmas party where where he worked. Um, And the government had his iPhone and they wanted to get into it. But due to the encryption on that phone and due to the particular model and, and firmware version number that he had on his phone, they were unable to do that. And so there was this big legal showdown where they went to Apple and they said, hey, we want you to re-engineer your software and break the digital lock on this thing so that we can get into this phone, you know, figure out what this guy, you know, had on his phone and what, what he was doing. That all sounds, you know, I think I think many people would not object to the government being able to access that. But here's the problem. And this is what if you talk to people who study computer science, people who have really studied uh, cryptography and the way this all kind of works is that it's not really possible for there to be essentially a key that only the government has access to. There, there's not really a good way to say, okay, we all can have strong encryptions on our phone and we all can enjoy that because we all need protection from the miscreants of the world. Uh, but under special circumstances, the government can have access to this to this special key. Encryption just doesn't work like that. This is often referred to as key escrow, right? Like, a, like as if a key, a physical key were being held in escrow by like a trusted, you know, third party or something. Encryption just doesn't work like that. The government basically says, hey, all you smart computer science people, you need to figure this out. And, you know, the, I would say the overwhelming consensus in the computer science community is this is not possible to do. There are, again, depending on which versions of what software and which versions of what phones you have, the government already has devices. Uh, they're often referred to as as digital forensics devices. They're made by companies like CellBright. There's another one called uh, GrayKey and GrayShift. There are a few others uh, where they can literally plug a phone in and try to break the encryption And grab all the data off the phone and search it for the purposes of a criminal investigation So when the government says now that they want lawful access They want to essentially circumvent this whole cat-and-mouse game that I'm talking about where sometimes the government has the upper hand and Sometimes, you know Apple and Google have the upper hand depending on which version of the software that you have They want there to always be a condition under which they can access whatever material that they need, right? They say just like how we can access, you know, we can get a warrant to search your house, or we can get a warrant to search your your physical papers or physical objects in your home or your office. Um, we don't want there to be a world where there's this place that we're not able to get into, like a phone or some other kind of digital device. Mm-hmm. Um, so what this bill would do is it would mandate that. Companies like Apple and Google and future companies uh, would have to essentially set up a system in such a way that the government can get easy access to a device, um, you know, under certain conditions, right, when a judge signs off on a warrant. In the case of Apple, it's also worth noting that, you know, when we go back and we think about the San Bernardino case that I was mentioning earlier, Apple has drawn this line between data that is kept on the phone and data that is kept in the cloud right so so Apple has this system if you have an iPhone you know this right it has the system called iCloud which is like their kind of cloud backup service um, and if you have an iPhone chances are you probably also use iCloud if if the government goes to Apple and says hey we have a warrant to search Sarus's, uh iCloud account um, because we think he's you know a, a criminal you know terrible person uh, and here's a warrant Apple will say, "Okay, sure. Here's the data on wow. iCloud. No problem. Here it is." That's really? that's normal. That happens all, Yeah, that happens all the time. Happens all the time. If the government comes to Apple and says, "Hey, we have a we have a warrant to search Cyrus's iPhone." Apple says, "Sorry, you're can't out of luck. Like we can't we can't help you because mm. they have drawn this distinction between data that is held solely on the phone and data that is held in the cloud." Mm. So, for most people, that probably is fine most of the time, right? In, in the world of security and privacy, we often talk about like threat modeling, right? Uh, if you are the type of person who isn't bothered by Apple having the ability to hand over your data, then you're probably fine keeping your photos and documents and whatever else, your, your text messages on iCloud. If it really bothers you that, that Apple uh, has that ability, uh, to hand those over to the government under certain conditions, then maybe you shouldn't use uh, that product or that service. Yeah. You know, um, And it's a trade-off that I think we all have to think about between kind of convenience uh, and privacy, right? I always tell people uh, it's really easy in this world to be private. Uh, all you have to do is just throw all of your devices into the bay and go move to the Sierras <laughs> in a cabin and never talk to anyone ever again. And then simple. you're totally private and you're good. Uh, it's very simple. It, it is. But but the problem is, right, like you and I, and I think most people listening to this, uh, we like people and we like cute cat videos and we like using the Internet. But we also, you know, um, so it's, it's a really it's a hard balance. It's a really hard balance. And to go back to your kind of your earlier point, uh, and this is something this is an issue that I raise in my book that came out a couple of years ago, Habeas Data, which is that, you know, if we want to be conscious of the types of surveillance that law enforcement, whether it's our local law enforcement agency or the FBI are using, uh, we need to at least be aware of what they have and what their capabilities are. Right. Just as I think any of us could recognize a San Francisco Police Department, you know, car or a police officer in uniform could recognize a Um, you know, what what a police weapon looks like, what a police radio looks like. In the same way, I think we should be able to understand like, okay, the police have this ability to monitor Facebook or this ability to access phones or this ability to do this other thing. Mm -hmm. And we should just all just be just understand that and be aware of that. And often it's the case with sophisticated types of surveillance, whether it's online monitoring or you know, digital forensics, I think most people, including, you know, people whose job it is is to, you know, monitor the police, right, the city council or Congress or whatever, just don't, right? I think most of, most of the time, they don't have a good understanding of the capabilities that that law enforcement has.
0: I'm speaking with Cyrus Farivar, a reporter on the Tech Investigations Unit of NBC News in San Francisco. So with this lawful access bill, I mean, it sounds like we're talking about just criminal masterminds here, or, or potentially terrorists, but you talked with Andrew Crocker at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and, and he said it's this law, it's blind to the fact that as millions of us march in the streets and shelter in place, we've never been more dependent on secure communications and devices. Is there potential fallout for demonstrators in here?
1: Absolutely, I think there's potential fallout. I mean, I think, you know, when we talk about surveillance, I think it's really important for us to think about what kinds of surveillance we're, we're referring to and how easy it has been and is becoming and will continue to to get uh, for the government to conduct mass surveillance. I think for most of us, you know, we understand like, OK, the police are looking for one criminal mastermind and they're taking extraordinary measures to go after one person that i think you know if they have good reason they've gone to a judge has signed off on it you know a grand jury has has uh uh allowed an indictment to go forward like like okay we have checks in the system to go after a person or a small group of people that's one thing it's an entirely different thing when you know people are peacefully assembling as the constitution allows to protest the government right that's also part of the first amendment right petitioning for redress of grievances whether it's in front of the Oakland City Hall or in front of the police headquarters or whatever else. And the government is using something like a license plate reader or a drone or uh, something else that can monitor who is there, whether that's through facial recognition, whether that's through a device that's capturing data off of cell phones, whether that's something else that we can't even imagine yet. I think that is the sort of nightmare scenario for many people who think about privacy is that if you take away people's ability to be anonymous and speak kind of publicly as a large group, and the government can just go to a can go to a judge and say, okay, we want to bust into the phones of, you know, these 200 people or whatever, and has the ability to do that, whereas now there's a few more kind of roadblocks in place. I think that's a potentially more troubling scenario.
0: Well, I'm glad that you brought up all these technologies and, and just the general like environment of surveillance. I, I have another question for you where I suspect the answer may be it's on a case-by-case basis and we cannot know, but something that I also asked the Electronic Frontier Foundation and two Stanford students who have been creating a map of surveillance technology and use by law enforcement in the Bay Area is uh, there's so much tech available to law enforcement. Like what you mentioned, license plate readers, drones, shot spotters, body cameras. What happens with the data that's gathered by these technologies once it's in law enforcement's hands? Like, why do they want it?
1: Well, I think that's a great question. I think that that the argument that law enforcement would make is... It helps us solve crimes. And I'm sure that it does, right? Take license plate readers, right? License plate readers I've been writing about for many, many years. Mm-hmm. License plate readers, for people who don't know, are specialized cameras that are typically mounted on top of police cars. And they're designed to do one thing and do one thing extremely well, which is to capture license plates. And they do this at incredible speeds. Uh, they can capture plates at up to speeds up to 60 plates per second. Wow. So if they're, if you imagine a police car driving down your street right now, uh, that had a license plate reader, it would be capturing all the cars parked in both directions and essentially any car traveling in any orientation uh, that it can see, right, within, within a, a short radius. Um, but it's constantly scanning. And if you think about it, like from just like a computer science perspective, license plates compared to, let's say, faces, right? License plates are actually pretty easy to scan because they're all the same size. They're generally all the same like font, Uh, they're always like, you know, they're positioned on all cars in basically the same place. Like a machine can do that very easily because, you know, you can't block your license plate right Unlike a face, uh, a face recognition or a face scanner, right? People are maybe have beards or have hats or have makeup or have whatever, uh, like license plates are basically all the same. So that's like really easy for a computer to scan and understand. Um, and so cops will tell you, uh, uh, this is a great technology because it allows us to find stolen cars or wanted cars or Amber Alerts uh, or things like that. And it's really helpful for us to, to do that. And that's great. Right. I think all of us want law enforcement to particularly uh, go after, uh, you know, violent and serious crimes. Right. You know, where I live here in Oakland and in San Francisco, too, and in many cities right there. There continues to be, unfortunately, lots of real violent terrible crime that that happens and I think many of us would want the police to to target their efforts there the problem is is that in the case of license plate readers the overwhelming majority of the data that is collected and in this case the data means the actual plate number ABC123 or whatever plate uh, plus the date plus the time plus the GPS location so those are the things that the device is actually capturing and and holding Uh, You're asking how, like, why do they want it? They want it in that case because they think it's helpful to them for solving crimes. And how long do they keep it? The answer is, it depends. (laughs) It depends on whether or not the agency has a particular policy that says, uh, that defines specifically how long they can keep that data. In California, uh, that ranges from, you know, a matter of weeks to a matter of months to years to indefinitely. And if you go around the country, uh, you'll see uh, agencies varying widely uh, as to how much data they can they can cl- or how long they can keep that data for. Um, but you were
0: saying the the problem with this is that the overwhelming majority of the data that's captured is is. Oh, I'm
1: what? sorry. The overwhelming the problem is that the overwhelming majority of this data is, I would argue, innocuous. It's it actually doesn't help solve crimes. Mm. If and and we know this because if you do the math, and you ask a given law enforcement agency. Uh, What is your hit rate? That is, what is the number of times that a license plate, because what it's doing when a license plate reader is scanning is it's looking for, it's looking for plates that match the list of cars that it's looking for, right? So if you know that like there's an Amber Alert and you have a suspect who has, you know, plate ABC123, then the scanner is going to go look for that plate. uh, and, And if it finds a match, right, police call that a hit right? So if you figure out what's the hit rate, what is the number of times that there's hits divided by the total number of scans, right? The answer is in every single case that I have looked at, every single agency that I've looked at, the answer is well below 1%, right? So 99 plus percent of the number of scans that are captured are of regular people like you and me going about our business. Uh, You know, if you're like me, you're just going to baseball in the before times. Anyway, you're just going to baseball games, going to get tacos, going to get beers with people like just going about your regular business, you know. and, And so I think that is one of the concerns that people have is that when you have a tool that has a good reason or could have a good reason for existing and can be useful in certain circumstances to law enforcement, that in many instances, you know, that data is captured Uh, For long periods of time is captured by regular law abiding citizens who, you know, may not necessarily want the 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 police department or whatever other agency uh, to know uh, that they conducted, you know, that they engaged in. Uh, whatever type of, of lawful behavior, whether that's, like I said, going to a bar, going to a cannabis dispensary, going to a sex toy shop, going to a strip club, going to a church, going to a synagogue, going to a mosque, uh, going to going to a protest, right? Any of those things are totally lawful and legal and normal behaviors. Uh, but you may not necessarily want, you know, the government to have a record
0: of that. Mm hmm. Well, Sarus, we are over time, but I, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. Is there any any final thoughts you <laughs> want to leave us with about the uh, the sort of any trends you see developing in terms of the, du- the direction government is going um, with surveillance of protests?
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, I would just say this, this type of technology, surveillance technology is getting more sophisticated by the day um, as time goes on. Um, I think it's incumbent on all of us to ask questions whether we are trained journalists or not uh to find out what kinds of surveillance are being used in our cities and our counties and our states and our nation and i would implore people if they haven't done so already if they're concerned about these issues to connect with you know advocacy advocacy organizations you mentioned the electronic frontier foundation there's also the american civil liberties union uh here in oakland there's something called oakland privacy there are many activist groups all over the Bay Area and beyond that are very concerned with these issues. And I would encourage people to, uh, you know, link up with those groups. And um, if one doesn't exist, you know, see if maybe you can you can start your own. And also, I always encourage people to if you don't know what type of surveillance technology is used in the city or county where you live, uh, find out. File a public records request. This is a thing that anybody can do. You don't have to be a journalist. You don't have to be a lawyer. You don't have to have any special powers Uh, you can just do it. Um, You could ask for, uh, you know, all purchase orders of drones by your county sheriff within the last five years is a thing that you could ask for. Mm. Um, You could ask for, uh, you know, all the instances in which uh, you could ask for, as I did, um, you know, all of the data collected by license plate readers if that city or county has one. Um, You could ask for, you know, body camera footage. There's all kinds of things that you can ask for uh, that should be available under public under state or federal public records law. Um, so that's something that I always just encourage people to do um, if they are you know, interested in really digging into what is actually uh, in their community.
0: Well, thanks again for taking the time to talk with me. I appreciate it.
1: My pleasure.
0: That was Sarus Farivar, a reporter on the tech investigations unit of NBC News in San Francisco and author of Habeas Data. Read his reporting at nbcnews.com. I'm Laura Wenis, and you've been listening to Civic.